The Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals presents the timeless teaching of Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse. The Christian life does not rise from the efforts of men to try to live like Christ, to pattern their lives by Him, which would be like expecting a cigarette butt to shine like the sun. Rather, the Christian life is the outflowing of the presence of Christ, born into the life of the believer at regeneration through the implanting of the divine nature by God. There cannot be a Christian life from any being who is not a Christian in the biblical sense of that name and title. Over a half a century ago, the late Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse, then pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, saw the need to spread God's word beyond the hearing of his local congregation. He started the radio outreach which has become known as Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible. The application of God's word as taught by Dr. Barnhouse is as relevant today as when he first taught over the radio airwaves decades ago. The message we'll be featuring on today's edition of Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible is entitled, The Christian Walk. Have you ever seen a baby walk out of the hospital immediately after he was born? It will take nearly a year of growing and crawling before he learns how to walk. At the moment of his new birth, a newborn Christian does not immediately know how to walk with the Lord in holiness and righteousness. He must learn over time with the Word of God and the Holy Spirit as his teachers. Are you learning every day how to walk with the Lord? The scripture text for this edition of Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible, Romans chapter 6 and verse 4. Here again is Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse with a message entitled, The Christian Walk. Through the Lord Jesus Christ we come unto thee, our Father and our God, and in the Holy Spirit. We thank Thee for Thy grace and faithfulness, and we pray Thee that Thy word may now go forth in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance, that our faith may not stand in the wisdom of men, but in Thy power, O God. We ask it in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. We're studying together in the sixth chapter of Romans, and we have seen that we have become the same plant in the likeness of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This means, then, that the Christian walks in newness of life. The way a man walks is very revealing as to his character. The words which have been used to describe various ways of walking need merely to be listed in order to bring such different pictures to our minds that we realize sharply how the way of walking reveals attitudes and even character. Slouch, shuffle, brisk, smart, erect, with step swift and sure, prowl, hesitating, lagging, and all the other words which describe a man's gait, we may gather from all parts of speech and heap together. It is not surprising, therefore, to find in the Bible that greatest of all literary masterpieces on its lesser side, while it is spirit and life in its more important side, 
The life of a Christian as described under the figure of a walk. We're to walk in newness of life, having become of the same plant as the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we wish to consider the walk of the Christian from four different points of view. But before anyone can walk, they must be on their feet. And the Christian life cannot be lived until one has become a Christian. It might seem superfluous to state that a baby cannot walk until he's been born. Yet there are people who attempt to walk the Christian life before they have been born again. The Bible is categorical on this point. Life begins with the new birth. And there is no life apart from this redemptive work of the Lord Jesus Christ in the heart of the believer. If these words should come to the ears of someone who has not been born again, I ask you to consider the teaching of the word of God on this point. There are two classes of non-Christians, those who simply lie down in sin and make no pretense of walking, and those who have a walk which is ethical and which they confuse with the walk of the Christian. We will read in the 8th chapter of Romans, If any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. This passage is frequently misquoted and misapplied as though no man could be called Christ's unless the man were Christ-like. Now that is not the meaning, for no true Christian is Christ-like at the beginning of his Christian life. Little by little and day by day we grow into the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. But it is a lifelong process, and at the end... There is the vast gap remaining that has to be bridged by the transforming power of Christ in our glorification with him. The true meaning of the phrase, if any man have not the spirit of Christ, he is none of his, lies rather in the presence of the life, the germ which, from which the rest may develop. An electric light bulb may be screwed into the socket and the current may be turned on. But if there is no filament within, there will be no light within the bulb. So a human being may have the outward form of a Christian, a professing Christian, but only by the miracle of the new birth, the creation within of the new man by the touch of God, can the light of Christ shine in any life. Some obstruction may cause the current to be cut so that there is but a tiny glow on the filament, but it is capable of lighting up with full power. The presence of the Lord Jesus Christ is that which makes a Christian. And the Bible teaches that only comparatively few of this world's population possess this divine grace. To the lost, then, we say that men must forsake hope in themselves and bring their trust utterly and absolutely to rest on Christ and his death for their sin. To the Christian, the possessor of the life of Christ, we speak of the growth of that life under the figure of our Christian walk. There are four prepositions in connection with the Christian walk. To Abraham, God said, I am the almighty God, walk before me. Through Moses, God commanded the children of Israel, ye shall walk after the Lord your God. Of two of the patriarchs, Enoch and Noah, it is written that they walked with God. Finally, in the New Testament, we find it written, as ye have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him. Now we are told then to walk before the Lord, to walk after the Lord, to walk with the Lord, and to walk in the Lord. The significance of these four phases of our Christian life is important. The truths revealed are beautiful. First, we are told to walk before the Lord. This gives us a picture of childhood. 
Many of us can remember perhaps incidents of our own childhood when we walked before our parents. I can recall our Sunday morning walk to Sunday school, skipping along the sidewalk, stopping to examine a place in the cement where a group of children had left the prints of their hands and bare feet when it was wet, and where a horseshoe had been embedded in the walk. There was a certain place where I would run far ahead and wait at the curb for my father to come up, that I might cross with him. There was one yard before which I paused, waiting for my father to come up close, that I might have him near at hand before passing a huge barking dog. Walking before my father was a place of absolute safety. His eye was ever upon me, and his voice could call out if I strayed from the way he wanted me to go. Certainly it is so with our Heavenly Father. He has us walk before him in the path of great security. We read in Job 23, He knoweth the way that I take. We need never fear when our Father, our Heavenly Father, is behind us. He started us on this walk. He put us there in his sight, and he expects to bring us home. Jeremiah heard the Lord say, we read it in Jeremiah 29, 11, For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, saith the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you an expected end, an anticipated end, a purposed end. And surely this is the heart of our Father. But walking before the Father also stands for training and discipline. I can see a father and his children taking their walk day by day in the middle of the big city where they lived. There were perils of traffic and other city dangers on every hand. The training went on day by day. The children walked before their father and were told that they might run ahead to a certain tree some 50 yards away. If they ran beyond it, they were kept walking just five steps ahead of the father for many sedate minutes while they fretted for their liberty. Upon their promise that they would observe his limits, they were loosed again. I can see them running up to the fixed goal and standing with their toes to a line. Little soldiers obeying with absolute precision. When they had been trained so well that they never overshot their prescribed limits, then the distance was raised until they were advancing a hundred yards and more. Finally, they were released at a certain point and told they could go ahead, disappear out of sight around the corner and stop at a certain known goal. When that lesson had been learned, they were ultimately permitted to cross a quiet street where there was little danger of traffic. When such a crossing had been successfully negotiated on many successive days, they were permitted to cross at a busier corner. Time was passing. Where three-year-old steps had been halted at 50 yards and four-year-old steps had been permitted to go around a corner and out of sight, five-year-old steps were crossing streets. One day the father sent the boys a block ahead where they had to cross two streets, gave the money to go into a familiar store and make a purchase and wait there for him. The distances were lengthened. The sums of money entrusted to them were increased. The importance of the errands grew. Finally, there came a day when a $10 bill was given to them and they were told to go to a bank three or four blocks away, get change and bring it home. Faithful in few things, they were made faithful over many. And this is the desire of the father heart. Every father is more eager to have his children blessed than his children are to receive the blessing. And this is why the Heavenly Father tells his children to walk before him. He desires their growth, their discipline, their training, that they may be strong in the powers that he has given them. Now, in the second place, not only are we told to walk before the Lord, but the children of Israel were told to walk after the Lord. This teaches us the great truth of precept, example, and following. We learn to be followers of our God. 
shaping our lives by his blessed example. It's quite natural for a boy to wish to be like his earthly father, and it's an unhappy man who so lives before his boy that the latter sees such flaws in the father that he wishes to turn away from following in his steps. And still more unhappy is that father who lives in such a way as to drag his boy down to his own level of sins. But when we walk after the steps of our Lord, we need have no fear, for he has furnished the perfect example for the Christian. Let not the non-Christian think that he can walk in the path of the Lord. As we have pointed out, the non-Christian is dead in trespasses and sins. Only the believer can ever look to the Lord's life as the example of his walk. We read in 1 Peter 2.21, Christ suffered for us, leaving us an example that we should follow his steps. We sang in our Sunday school years ago, trying to walk in the steps of the Savior, trying to follow our Savior and King, shaping our lives by his blessed example. Happy, how happy the songs that we bring. How beautiful to walk in the steps of the Savior, stepping in the light, stepping in the light, how beautiful to walk in the steps of the Savior, led in paths of light. Now, of course, a non-Christian cannot follow Christ, but we who are believers can. Now, there may well be the idea of following Christ in our daily living, inherent in such a suggestion of walking after him. But the context of the verse gives us a much more sobering thought. Clearly, we are taught that the following in the steps of Christ is a following in his sufferings. The world hated him, the world will always hate the true believer. If you're just a normal person that everybody thinks you're like everybody else, you may be sure you are not living close to Christ. Christ gave the clear outline of what following him would really mean. If the world hate you, he said, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If ye were of the world, the world would love his own. But because ye are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. Remember the word that I said unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord. It's like living near a target. If you knew, for example, that the Russians were going to put an atomic bomb on Detroit, and if you said, well, I'll move to Arizona, you'd be rather safe. If you said, well, I'll move to Kansas City, you'd still be safe. If you said, I'm going to build my house in Detroit, halfway between Willow Run and River Rouge, why well, you'd soon become radioactive after the bomb fell. Now, if you live a long way from Jesus Christ, you'll never become radioactive for him. The enemy never hits there. But the closer you get to Christ, the more the world is going to shoot at you as a target. Walking after the Lord is the true explanation of what it means to take up our cross and to follow him. Too often, there's a total misconception of what a cross means for a Christian. For example, a mother once told me that she had a very heavy cross to bear. Her son was in prison. That was not a cross. Oh, it was a personal tragedy, a tragedy of sin, but it's not the cross. Another woman said that her cross was cancer. That was not a cross. That's a disease, the common lot of humanity. The only cross in the Bible is the cross of Jesus Christ. And when Jesus tells you to take up your cross, it means follow him. When the believer is told he's to deny self, to take up his cross daily to follow Christ, he is being instructed that he must count himself as being crucified with Christ, that his old nature should be yielded over for crucifixion death, and that in taking up the cross, he's taking up likeness to Christ's own sufferings. 
who when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself unto him who judgeth righteously. It was to this life that we were called, and it is specifically stated that it is in this type of life that Christ left the example that we were to follow his steps. But with all of the sufferings of the Christian life, there are preeminent compensations. If we walk before the Lord to learn, and if we follow after him in his sufferings, there is also the privilege of walking with him in fruitful companionship. Friends walk together. Two cannot walk together, we read in Amos 3.3, unless they are agreed. And when we are told that we are to walk with our Lord, it's understood that we shall have put down our wills in order that we might accept his will fully. It's interesting to note that only two men out of all of the characters of the Bible are said to have walked with God. These two were Enoch and Noah, and the application of this word to them is very instructive. These men lived in an age of apostasy and moral decline that has had no parallel in the history of the world except perhaps in our day, and that will be paralleled only in the time that precedes the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, who said, as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be also in the days of the Son of Man. Of Enoch it was written that he had this testimony that he pleased God. And of Noah we read that he found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Beyond any doubt, the characteristic in the lives of these two men that brought out such praise from God was their willingness to set themselves in opposition to the godlessness of their generation and to tell men to their faces that the judgment of God would not stay but would fall upon them and destroy them from before the face of the holy God. We read in one brief sentence which remains to us of Enoch's words that he repeated one word, the word ungodly, four times in that one sentence. The burden of his sermon was the ungodliness of the world about him. Behold, the Lord cometh, he warned his contemporaries, with myriads of his saints to execute judgment upon all and to convince all that are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds, which they have ungodly committed, and of all their hard speeches, which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Now, what gave these men the courage to defy their generation? The answer is clearly indicated. They walked with God. Walking with God is fellowship and companionship, but it's also surrender to his will and his attributes and agreement with him. The man who follows Christ accepts the holiness of the Lord as the supreme standard of living and accepts the sovereignty of God as the final court of right in words and deeds. There could be no fellowship apart from the clear recognition of the Lord's sovereign right to do as he pleases, when he pleases, of the Lord's wisdom and knowledge as overruling all of man's and Satan's devices, and of the Lord's authority in the believer's own life to will and to do of his good pleasure. The man who walks with God will know him as Lord and Master, will know him as sovereign in history and circumstance, and will be permeated with his very spirit of judgment and burning. And finally, we are told that as we have received therefore Jesus Christ, the Lord, so walk ye in him. This is the climax of all our walking. To walk in Christ is to recognize the richness of our position in him and to see our lives as being hid with Christ in God. 
The little word in, as we have seen, is one of the most potent in the New Testament. If the epistles are read with care, it will be discovered that this preposition appears coupled with the name of Christ or a pronoun of that name in more than 200 instances. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. We are accepted in the beloved, in whom we have redemption through his blood. And we are blessed with all spiritual blessings in the heavenlies in Christ. These and scores and scores of other passages speak of the position of the believer as identified with Christ, made in the same plant with him, in his resurrection to walk in newness of life. Now there is a profound meaning back of all these uses of this little word. How did we get to be in Christ? The Bible clearly teaches that this placing of the believer in his position of being in Christ is that work of the Holy Spirit called the baptism of the Holy Spirit, or more correctly translated, the identification of the believer through the Holy Spirit and the placing of the believer in Christ. We're all familiar with the simple truth of the gospel, that our salvation is secure to us because God looked upon us as being in Christ when our Lord suffered upon the cross. We're aware of the calls to holy living on the grounds that we are counted as having been quickened with him when he was raised from the dead. We see the great truth of our ascension with him, that we're counted as being already seated in the heavens with Christ. All of these phases of truth and scores of others is taught in these verses within, coupled to the name of Christ and our position in him, are summed up in the obligation that is upon us because of our glorious position in Christ. We have been trained to walk before him. We are called to look upon his sufferings and to be willing to walk after him. He takes us into his closest fellowship and bids us walk with him. All of this obliges us to bring every thought and action into subjection to Christ. Every phase of our life is to be lived within the position that is ours by his death, resurrection, and ascension. We are in Christ. We have received all this by grace. So let us walk in him, glorifying him in our body and in our spirit, which are God's. To walk in Christ, as our text shows, is to be of the same plant in his resurrection. It means that all of the source of our life comes from heaven, that the spring of our life does not come out of the Adamic heart, and that all that we have and all that we are is ours because of a life that is not our own. When we begin to understand this, we begin to understand a little of the meaning of the resurrection. Oh, how wonderful it is to know that Christ the Lord is risen today. And that doesn't make any difference whether it's Monday or Thursday or Sunday or Tuesday or any other day of the week. Christ the Lord is risen today. Let us not go back to being of that type of people who have Easter once a year. As a sort of day for new clothes following 40 days of rather restricted living. But rather let us comprehend that Jesus Christ being raised from the dead dieth no more. And that having been raised from the dead, we were joined together with him. And that being in that union of life with him, we are there once and for all and forever. God calls us to life, not to existence. How many, many of you who listen are Christians, perhaps, and are satisfied with just Christian existence. You neglect your Bible, you neglect prayer, or rather you satisfy yourself that you're doing all right because you open your Bible here and there and read a verse or two and pray perhaps, Lord, thou knowest all is right between me and thee, when in reality all is wrong between you and him. And then you fall off to sleep 
and wake up the next day for another dreary round and perhaps say, as you see some Christian who knows the rich reality of joyous living in Christ, so-and-so has something that I do not have. I wish I had that. Oh, you who believe in Jesus Christ, it is yours for the taking. Now, you who are not a believer, it's something quite different. But for you who are in Christ, you have been made of the same plant with him in his resurrection. And thus, life is for you to live. And our God and Father, we pray thee that the Holy Spirit shall take this word to each heart. If there should be any listening who have not been born again, we pray thee that thou shalt accompany them with restlessness, that they may know no peace until they rest in Christ. But upon thy believing own who have truly believed in thee, may thy grace, thy mercy, and thy peace abide. And a new sense of the rich wonders of resurrection life in Christ, available for every believer. And unto thee be the glory and the majesty, the dominion and the power, now till our Lord Jesus come again and forever. Amen. It is a lifelong process to grow in Christ and develop true godly character. Little by little and day by day, our Heavenly Father patiently teaches us how to walk in fellowship with Him. We hope you have benefited from today's message by Dr. Barnhouse entitled, The Christian Walk. You can listen to additional Bible teaching by the late Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse via the Internet by visiting the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals website at AllianceNet.org. An audio copy of today's teaching is available by calling us toll-free 1-800-488-1888. Today's message again is entitled, The Christian Walk, or simply request message number R6-19. We would also like to make available to you a free copy of our booklet entitled, This Man and This Woman. The value of marriage and the family is rapidly declining in our culture. The resulting epidemic of divorce and broken families has infested our society and even the church. This free booklet underscores the sanctity of marriage and its vital role in the church and in society. You will understand the true meaning and significance of Christian marriage and find biblical answers to questions about mixed marriage, divorce, and remarriage. Ask for your free copy of This Man and This Woman when you call or write. Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible is a radio ministry of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals headquartered in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. We exist to promote a biblical understanding and worldview. Drawing upon the insight and wisdom of Reformation theologians from decades and even centuries gone by, we seek to provide contemporary Christian teaching materials which will equip believers to understand and meet the challenges and opportunities of our time and place. Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible comes to you through the generous gifts of our listeners. If you have benefited from the broadcast and would like it to continue, please prayerfully consider a donation to help us keep this ministry on the air. For more information or to make a contribution to support and further our work, please contact us by writing Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, Box 2000, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, 19103. Call toll-free 1-800-488-1888 or visit us online at AllianceNet.org. Be sure to ask for a free updated resource catalog featuring books, audio teachings, commentaries, booklets, daily devotionals, videos, and a wealth of other materials from outstanding Reformed teachers and theologians, including Donald Gray Barnhouse, James Montgomery Boyce, Michael Horton, and Martin Lloyd-Jones. Then join us again next time for more classic teaching on Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible.